0: The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Kerry here and Happy New Year, everybody. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, today we have none other than James Clear. He doesn't give a lot of interviews, but we're so fortunate to have him kick off the new year and we're going to talk... All about Atomic Habits, the making of it, how he became James Clear, and much more. And today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy's Pastoral Succession Toolkit. So my friend Sean Morgan and I have put together a value-packed training and comprehensive checklist for free. And if you are thinking about succession, going through one, or have gone through one in the last five years, you don't want to miss it get it at SuccessionToolkit.com. That's SuccessionToolkit.com. And by He Gets Us Partners. You can go to Us slash carry. And if you go there today, you'll get your free resources and join the over 15,000 churches who are part of this movement. Well, I'm so thrilled to have James Clear on. We are going to talk about the backstory behind Atomic Habits, his top tips on habit formation, values, and identity, And I asked him why he thinks Atomic Habits has sold more than 10 million copies. It's a really fascinating conversation. James is one of those people who really doesn't need an introduction, but here it is anyway. He is a writer and speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Atomic Habits, currently number one on the New York Times list. His book has sold over 10 million copies worldwide, been translated into more than 50 languages. He is a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work has been featured in places like Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and on CBS this morning, his popular 321 email newsletter is sent out each week to more than 2 million subscribers. You can learn more and sign up at jamesclear.com and fasten your seatbelts. This is a great conversation. So, hey, talking about conversations you need to have. How about succession? And here's the challenge. Succession, pastoral succession, isn't urgent until it is. If you or your church has gone through a transition, I'm pretty sure you can relate, right? It's only a matter of time until you realize, oh yeah, this is something we all have to go through. Well, the truth is it's not too late To prepare well, I've recently teamed up with Sean Morgan to create the Pastoral Succession Toolkit. I've gone through a succession myself. Sean is a leading expert in this field. The toolkit includes some short but value packed training and a comprehensive checklist that outlines key milestones, goals, and decisions, both pre and post transition. So if you think you've got one coming up in a few years, if you're in the middle of one right now, or if it's less than five years in the rearview mirror, Actually, there's a lot of value in this for you because, as you know, transition issues continue. As a bonus, there's also some super practical salary negotiation tips for those who haven't made the transition yet or if you want to. If this sounds like a great resource, just go to SuccessionToolkit.com to get everything I just mentioned for free. And I'm sure by now you've heard of the He Gets Us campaign. It's sparking a nationwide conversation and millions of people are discovering, rediscovering, and taking a fresh look at Jesus' message of radical love. Now, thanks to the free resources made available by He Gets Us, over 15,000 churches have joined the movement. These resources are designed to give churches new ways to understand the culture they encounter every day and engage with their people and communities in conversations about Jesus. So if you're looking for new ways, to strengthen your message, keep small groups fresh, encourage online spiritual practices, or connect with a rapidly changing culture, you're going to want to be part of the partnership. So go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash C-A-R-E-Y to learn more about how you can get involved and leverage this moment. And now, a really exciting conversation to kick off a new year. Here is my conversation
1: with James Clear.
0: Welcome to the podcast, James.
1: Hey, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So this started with a personal story that you tell in Atomic Habits, but as I was getting ready for this, I thought, you know, there's a lot of leaders who feel like they've been punched in the face over the last couple of years, but that literally happened to you playing baseball, hit in the face with a baseball bat. Talk about how that became the launching point for what has become your life.
1: Well, um... My sophomore year of high school, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was an accident. Um, bat slipped out of my classmates' hands. But um, I was air carried to the hospital. I had multiple seizures. I couldn't breathe on my own. I ended up being placed into a medically-induced coma that night. Um, the recovery was a very long process. So I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. I was uh, practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line, had physical therapy. So it was kind of a long process and I just wanted to get back to, you know, playing baseball and being kind of a normal, you know, high school kid. But it was the first time in my life where I was really forced to start small, you know, like all I could manage to do was whatever the next exercise was at physical therapy or the next, you know, like small milestone. And so that's what I had to focus on. Now at the time, I didn't have any real language for describing it. Like if you would have come up to me, I never would have said, Oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better each day. Or, you know, I'm just trying to make small improvements. Like I, you know, I wouldn't have phrased it like that, but I had to, I experienced it that way. And I think, you know, a decade later when I started my business and started writing about these topics and exploring them in more detail, I had some of that personal experience to draw upon. And actually a lot of the topics that I write about in Atomic Habits Or things that I had to practice myself. You know, like I had to build a writing habit just to complete the book. Um, I have workout habits and exercise habits and nutrition habits and relationship habits and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And I think that does make the material better because I have to be a practitioner of the ideas and not just like a theorizer of them. And as best as possible, I try to only write about topics that I also utilize in real life. I think it just makes it, it grounds it better. Um, the other side of that is I struggle with all the same things everybody else struggles with, you know, like, have I ever procrastinated on a habit? Yeah. All the time, you know, like, do I focus too much on the goal and not enough on the process? Yes, of course. You know, and like, in a sense, everything I write is just a reminder to myself to come back to center and focus on the fundamentals and return to, you know, the things that matter most. So, I'm mostly writing for myself. It just happens to be that my needs um, are similar to a lot of other people's needs. So you hinted at
0: about a 10-year gap between the accident recovery and then sort of making this your life, right? With the blog and then eventually the book and speaking and everything. What happened in that in intervening 10 years? Did you ever think about doing something else with your life? Did you have another plan for your life? Like, how Did you stumble on this success or how did that unfold?
1: Well, I never intended to be an, um, an author. So that like that part I kind of stumbled into, um, you know, the injury happened when I was pretty young. I mean, I was 16, you know, I was in high school. So of course the next few years I'm finishing high school and then going to college. And, you know, I, I ended up uh, playing baseball through college and that's, I I always enjoyed school. This is something I think is a little different than a lot of my entrepreneur friends that I have who seem to be like very anti-school or feel like they were kind of a square peg in a round hole sort of thing. I liked it. It was like a game for me, and I like trying to optimize things and figure out how they work and um, get better at them. So I always enjoyed the process of learning. Um, So it wasn't that I didn't care about school at all, but all I really wanted to do in college was play baseball. I wasn't really thinking too much about what the next step was. Um, I ended up going to graduate school just to kind of buy myself some time and give myself like two years to try to figure out what I was going to do next once my baseball career was over. And while I was there, I was studying, um, or I was working in the center for entrepreneurship, and I saw these people starting businesses, and I started to get like a little bit of an itch to start my own thing too. Mm -hmm. And looking back, it's easier to connect the dots. Like looking back, there are quite a few sort of entrepreneurial things that I did in my past that I just didn't know that that's what it was at the time. Like in college, I would collect everybody's textbooks at the end of the year or the end of the semester that they like didn't want. And then I'd sell them on Amazon uh, for everybody and then, you know, like split the profits or whatever. Um, Or when I was picking a major, I I looked through the course catalog and, you know, there's like 50 or 60 options and I didn't really like any of them that much. None of them were standing out to me. And then I found out that there was this process where you could design your own major and you just had to submit like your curriculum proposal to the Academic Affairs Council And so I did that and just, I was like, what I picked all the classes I wanted to take, which was mostly like science and sort of stuff. And then I was like, what would this be called basically? And it was like, Oh, it'd probably be called biomechanics. And so that's what I called it. And they were like, yeah, sure. Like you can major in that. So looking back, that's like a fairly entrepreneurial thing to do, to be like, I don't like any of these options. I'll go ahead and create the one that I want. But I didn't know that at the time. Um, and so, When I started my career, my entrepreneurial career, I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family. Um, I didn't have any authors that I knew or were friends with. So a lot of the first few years were just me like getting to know people who were doing the thing that I wanted to do so that I didn't feel like I was kind of out of my mind for attempting it so that I was kind of surrounding myself with people where my desired outcome was their like normal lifestyle. And the more that I got to know those people, the easier it became to show up and do those things each day. So that's just kind of the quick overview of that sort of arc.
0: Yeah, because I talk to a lot of budding, you know, people who want to have an online platform or switch to writing or that kind of thing. How did you find those people in the early days to reach out to to even begin to get a template for what you needed to do?
1: Well, there's um, there are like multiple levels to this I think are worth kind of unraveling. So the first is I kind of feel like the central mindset that you need to have as an entrepreneur is being trusting that you'll figure it out. You know, like there, there are no playbooks for almost all of this stuff. And there's no, even if there's like a way to do it, that most people do it, there's no, you're never going to feel like, Oh, this is a perfect fit for my lifestyle. And so it's very easy to get into this story of, well, maybe that works for somebody else, but it wouldn't work for me. Or maybe that's, you know, that sounds good, but I don't think it would work in reality. And it's very easy to talk yourself out of stuff, even when, the world has not given you, like, a true hard stop. Like, it's actually it's actually very rare in life to run up against a true brick wall. There's, like, almost always somebody else you could have reached out to or a different small step you could take or another line of attack. It's very rare that it's truly like, no, sorry, the universe has said no. There's no other... There's nothing else you can do. It's almost always the case that there are barriers or obstacles, but people stop themselves before the world stops them, they they just are like, well, I'll just stop trying at this point. So I think I did have that willingness or that trust that I would figure it out, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so I think that mindset's important. Um, the next thing is that I I had my own kind of period of fumbling around. I didn't know that I wanted to be a blogger or a writer or an author. I just knew that I wanted to have a business, and so I tried a variety of business ideas the first like year and a half. And I was just kind of taking freelance clients on the side to pay bills. And um, none of them worked very well. I just ended up kind of like wasting my time and launching like these bad products that nobody would buy. And like I did an iPhone app, for example, I think it made $17. Um, and it, co- it cost like $1,500 to get it coded. So you don't have to be very good at math to know that that didn't work out well. Um, but uh, the my point is that I was trying things. And one of the best pieces of advice I got early on was to try things until something comes easily. And so about a year and a half in, I had tried a couple different blogs and stuff at this point and the iPhone app and some other things. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start writing at jamesclear.com and write about some of the topics I'm interested in. And so I wrote about habits and productivity and all the stuff that I write about now. But I also wrote about some other things like healthcare or how to have better squat form in the gym and, you know, stuff like that. And whenever I wrote about habits and uh, strategy and decision-making and productivity, whenever I wrote about those topics, the audio, like it resonated way better. The results came much faster. And so that idea of try things until something comes easily, it doesn't mean only do easy things, or it doesn't mean that it will always feel easy. It just means that when you get it right, your hard work the units of output that you get will be much greater for the work that you're putting in and so you know like i was i was working hard the whole time but suddenly i found something where i was getting results much faster so that was kind of the first signal that i was like onto something and so once i had done that kind of like self discovery or figuring out what kind of business i wanted to run or at least what i wanted to write about then it became easier to reach out to people and to start to get to know people Because I then I was like, okay, I'm writing about nonfiction topics, peak performance, productivity, how to build better habits. Who else is already doing all that stuff successfully? And then I could just start to put together a list of other people and writers who already had books on those topics or already had websites on those topics. And then it's just having the guts to send them a cold email. And most people say no, but occasionally you would be like, hey, you want to get on Skype and chat for 20 minutes? Like I'm working on this project over here. And, um, you know eventually after emailing hundreds of people, you know, I got to know 30 or 40 and, and it kind of went from there.
0: Boy, I think young entrepreneurs should just replay that three or four times. That is so good. And a part of your story I wasn't fully familiar with, and yet it's one I hear over and over again, just taking a few stabs, didn't work out, tried this, didn't work. Then I found something that felt natural. And I, I love the fact that you were reaching
1: out after you built a little bit of credibility and had a lane to run in.
0: Made I call sense. it
1: the power of having a project. It's so much easier to get a cold email from somebody who's already working on something interesting. Like, if you just think about this in a very obvious way, it's a very straightforward way, interesting people want to know other interesting people. So, the single best thing that you can do is to do something interesting, to try to create your own thing that is compelling or useful or valuable. And if you start by creating something of value, people who also have something of value just want to get to know you because they're like, oh, it's kind of cool. They're making their own thing. You know, they're creating their own little dent in the universe. And so it's so much easier to get a yes from people when you have a project of your own that you're working on and creating. And sharing the the work that you do or the value you create is kind of like the ultimate networking hack, just like doing it and sharing it publicly will attract like-minded people. It's almost like you're creating sort of like a magnet for anybody who's interested in that kind of thing. And it just works so much better than like going to a cocktail party or trying to find a mentor in some, you know, whatever that means. Um, So it's, it just works a lot better when you have um, a project to anchor the request to.
0: So you've written about this and I think if it's accurate, my understanding of it is once you got that focus and started writing on productivity and habits on your blog, things started to take off relatively quickly. Uh, Your blog takes off, your newsletter takes off. Eventually you land a book deal within a few years, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes people have success, but they don't know what to do with that. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. uh, your, your platform got momentum. How did you figure out, because it seems to me looking back on the last decade, you have had a very strategic approach to success when it came. How, how did you figure that out? Yeah, that's
1: interesting. Um, probably too generous. I, I bet there are like people who look <laughs> at me and be like he doesn't know what to do with it you know like they probably, they probably feel like I, I'm still screwing it up. Um, I my general thing is I try to use my current advantages to secure new advantages. So it's just sort of an endless process of trying to accumulate or improve your position. Um, And in the beginning, I had my main advantage was time. You know, I didn't have a family. I didn't have a bunch of responsibilities, so I could put a lot of time and effort into each article. And so that's what I did. You know, like everything I wrote, it took me 20 hours or 30 hours. Like it was just, you know, it was a really long thing, but I made sure each one was as good as I could make it. And if I did that twice a week, which is, that's kind of the habit that launched my career. I would, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday, and I did that for the first three years. And eventually that led to the book deal and all the other stuff. Um, but so, you know, first the advantage was time. So I used that to try to create the best work possible. Then the audience starts to grow. And then like, maybe that becomes the advantage is the audience. And so then I try to use that to get the book deal. And then you have to make the most of that opportunity. So I spent the next couple of years trying to like create the best book possible and then you do a great launch and then the book comes out and then, you know, so it's just like, you try to just keep using each little stepping stone to get to the next, uh, piece. I don't really have some like super long-term thing that I'm working toward, like in the sense that I didn't start out and be like 10 years from now, I want to be an author or 10 years from now, I want to have a best selling book. Um, it was more just, the strategy kind of emerged as I went along and my main focus was, am I being useful? Am I providing value? Am I helping people and trying to make some little contribution uh, to my portion of the conversation? And if I'm doing those things, then good things are probably going to happen. And so, yeah, I I think that's mostly how I thought about it rather than like having a clearly laid out plan.
0: So, very few books sell a hundred thousand copies. Fewer still a million, but you're pushing or perhaps a past 10 million copies of Atomic Habits. Um, do you have any idea what has led to that kind of crushing success? And I have no idea is a very plausible
1: answer. I, I don't know. Yeah. But it's like um, everybody's read it. It's incredible. I have no idea. might be the, like, maybe that's a smarter answer. That might be an honest answer, but I do, <laughs> but I do have uh, theories. I do, I do have okay. things that I think have, have helped drive it. Um. So first I feel like th- I'm just going to make these numbers up, but it's just a rule of thumb to kind of illustrate the point. Um, 50% of the success of the book is how it's positioned. So um, the example I give is, There's a chapter later in Atomic Habits where I talk about deliberate practice. Now, it could have been a book about deliberate practice where I talk about habits. But instead, it's a book about habits where I talk about deliberate practice. And I think the difference in how those two books would sell is enormous. Because just by virtue of growing up in society and being a part of life, you kind of know that having good habits is favorable and desirable and having bad habits is unfavorable and undesirable. And I don't have to convince anybody of that. You know, like I am just writing a book that taps into a desire that people already have. And so my job is to convince you that this is the best way to approach it, or this is the most useful set of ideas on the topic. Not that this is a topic you should care about. And there are a lot of books that are doing the opposite, that are trying to convince you this is a topic you should care about. And that's like a really uphill battle if there's not already some desire that people have. Mm -hmm. So the positioning of the book is crucial um, or the positioning of a topic. The the other 50% is like a thousand details that all need to be done consecutively and need to be finely polished and, you know, and refined. So, um, the bulk of it is how it's positioned, but then that's not enough on its own. You also have all these other little things. Um, I think that there's launching a book is kind of like launching a space shuttle or launching a rocket in the sense that you need to put an enormous amount of energy in to get it off the launching pad and to get it up out of the atmosphere But if you get it high enough, then it'll stay in orbit on its own. But if you don't get it high enough, then it just crashes back down to earth. And so you need to reach escape velocity. And so the way that you execute the launch of a product, or in this case, a book, is a really important part of the process. Now, of course, I had some advantages because I had spent five plus years building an audience. And so I had a large email list to launch to. Um, But it's not like that just happened. You know, like I, I had to work five years for it to be there. So all of that, energy and time that I put into building the audience ended up paying off. It was kind of like latent energy or latent potential that was just finally released when the book came out. Um, And there were a bunch of things that we did for the launch of the book. So we can talk about that if you want. But the point is just, Hmm. you need to put a lot of energy in to get it out there and to get the word of mouth started. But the book has far outpaced my ability to market it. It's outpaced. It, mm-hmm. More people have bought the book than are in my audience now. So I, even if every single person I could reach bought it, like it still is beyond that. So what, how does that happen? What's going on there? And I think the only answer is that the only way I, I think we can debate what the number is, but there's some number that you could drive just by building a large audience and executing a good launch. Maybe it's, It depends on the size of your audience, of course, but maybe it's 50,000, maybe it's 100,000. It depends on the timeline too. You know, are we talking about over the first year over five years or whatever? But at some point you get beyond what you can drive yourself. And the only way for a product to sell millions or tens of millions of units is it has to be driven by word of mouth. People have to be talking about it. And I like Seth Godin's definition of that, which is, you need to create, create something remarkable, which is to say that it is worthy of remark, right? It's like worthy of people talking about it. And people only talk about stuff that they genuinely love, that they genuinely find useful, that is actually making a difference in their lives. And so in a sense, the book selling 10 million plus copies, I, for me, I feel like that's the best possible evidence that I did it right, which is I must've created something that did help people because otherwise they wouldn't be talking about it. Um, and it would never get to that level. So ultimately it all comes back to the same thing, which is you have to create something remarkable. Like you just, you, there's no way to do it without like really nailing the product, but there, we all know plenty of great products that don't reach that level. And I think that comes back to the positioning and the launch and the other factors that I mentioned. So you kind of need, you need the confluence of all of those. You need a really well positioned product. You need to execute a, um, a great launch of it, but ultimately it will only run as far as the word of mouth will take it. And so you have to have a fantastic product behind it because otherwise people won't talk about it.
0: You mentioned a couple of things that really helped at launch. Um, we have a number of prospective authors or first time authors, recurring authors listening. Um, what do you think in retrospect really helped the launch of Atomic Habits?
1: So, we did not do, I, well, so first of all, it's a two person job. So I, I have one employee. Um, so it's a, I run a two person operation. So Lindsay was a crucial part of the launch. I actually, um, I was solo for the first like five or seven years of my career. And then when I signed, uh, the book deal for atomic habits, I used some of the money from the advance to hire her. So without, without getting a like mainstream publishing deal, I wouldn't have had the money to hire her upfront. Um, so, you know, I spent all this time writing the book and I wanted to make sure that we gave it the best possible chance to reach as many people as possible. We began planning the launch of Atomic Habits 15 months before it came out. So I think that's the first thing is a long timeline. I will often hear from authors who are like, hey, you know, I have a book coming out in two months. What should I do? And uh, I'm not saying you can't use those two months effectively, but you're 13 months behind where I was when you know, we were starting. And so it's like, it's a very long, it's a very long process to execute all this stuff well. Um, so that's the first thing is realizing, like, I think, I I don't think it has to be 15 months, but I do think if you're going to be really serious about it, probably nine months to a year is how much time you're going to need to be thinking about this carefully. Um, I did not really do anything that people usually have not already heard of, but we did do it at a larger scale than most people, um, than most other authors do. So uh, obviously I have my own audience in your email list is like, that's the most important thing. So as I said, I spent five years building that. Um, so that was really crucial when the book came out. I think, um, when I signed the book deal, um, my email list was around 220, maybe 225, uh, 225,000 people. When the book came out, it was closer to 450. Um, so that was three years later. Um, so, you know, I had a large email list to launch to, So that helped. The second thing was podcasts. Um, Mm -hmm. I had 75 podcast interviews recorded and ready to be released um, before the book came out. And then I did 25 more the month the book came out. So by the time the book had been out for one month, there were 100 podcast interviews that had been released like within the same four weeks. Um, and for all of those, you know, this is like part of the like unsexy manual labor kind of grunt work part of it. Went to iTunes, looked at the, you know, top lists for all the different categories. And then we identified only shows that were interview shows. So they're already interviewing people. So we don't have to convince them to do something different than normal. We only looked at shows that were a good fit for the topic of the book and then came up with a list of like 300. And then I wrote individual emails to the hosts of all those 300 shows and we saved them all up. I wrote all the drafts. And then like six months before the book came out, we sent all the drafts out to everybody and, you know, to ask if they would have me on the show, spent a couple months getting those all scheduled. And then I spent like the three months before the book coming out, recording all those after they were each recorded, I would ask each host, Hey, can we release this um, on this week when the book comes out? And not everybody would do it exactly that week, but most people would do it right around there. And, um, so yeah, you got to ask 300 to get on 100, and you got to spend you know multiple months writing all those emails and getting you know everything put together. So it was a very like laborious or unsexy part of the process, but that's that's how it happened. We did the email list. I did the podcast push. Um, now I've done over 200 podcast interviews. That so just you know a lot now more of them come in like you know like this one and so on. And then uh, I got a little bit lucky. About a year before the book came out, I had written an article on my website, a a blog post that had been up for a while, a couple of years, and it was fine. It did, it did fine, but it wasn't anything amazing. And a journalist at the New York times wrote an article and they just linked to my blog post in that piece. Um, just, it was just kind of It was just one sentence. It wasn't like any big thing. Um, they linked to it and, uh, a producer from CBS this morning was reading that article in the New York times and clicked through to my website and found the, the original blog post. And they sent me an email. This was like a year before atomic habits came out and they were like, uh, Hey, do you want to come on the show and talk about, you know, this, this productivity article that you'd written? And so I was like, sure. So I took that really seriously. Um, I scripted out. They, they told me they were going to give me three minutes. Um, and I scripted out like six minutes worth of material. And I sent that to the producer ahead of time. I said, Hey, here's what I think we could talk about. They liked it. They ended up, we ended up doing four and a half minutes. Um, And I tried to do a really good job with that segment. And as soon as it ended, I went up to Gail King and I said, I have a book coming out in 10 months. Um, I would love to come back and do another like, you know, short segment like this about the book. And she said, um, we'd love to have you, uh, just make sure that we're your first stop. Like don't do a TV interview anywhere else before you do this one. Um, and I was like, deal. So, uh, I got her email and that day I got back and emailed her and got the producers lined up and got like everybody to got the publisher looped in and like made sure that we got that scheduled. And on launch day, I was in New York. I did the CBS this morning segment in the morning. They put it on their YouTube channel. Like two hours later, we took the clip from YouTube and put it in my email newsletter and sent that out to my audience. And that was the like announcement email that the book is out. And I, I don't know how many books the the actual TV segment sold. I've tried to estimate it. It was probably between, on the low end, 1,000. On the high end, 10,000. But it's some probably somewhere in that range. Um, but what it really did that benefited things was it made it feel like a thing. You know, it made it feel real. It wasn't just a guy launching his book. It was like, no, this is an event now. And uh, so I use that clip on social media and so on. And all of these things that I'm mentioning... The emails to my audience, the TV segment, the podcast interviews—there uh, were some other things we did too, but those are the main ones. All of this st- stuff, all this marketing energy, is getting happen, is coming into the same compressed window. So it's all happening at the same time, right? And so I, this is kind of my approach. I feel like you need to have a concentrated strike for the the launch. So all of that energy is in the same tight window of a few days. And what happens is that it seems much bigger than it actually is. You know, it's like for a couple, for a week or two, it's like all anybody's talking about. And I had people on, you know, Twitter being like, man, I can't get away from this guy. And uh, it's kind of, it's kind of like, that's sort of the point, you know, is to try to Uh be everywhere for a bit. And you can imagine all that same marketing energy, but if it's spread out over the course of like a year and something happens like every week or two, it doesn't seem like much. It's just kind of in the background. It's just noise the whole time. Right. But if it's all in the same tight window, then it feels big. So uh, that was those are the majority of the things we did. Uh, th- there are some other things too that you know I would say were smaller stuff. But all of that energy is trying to get packed into the same month, and collectively that kind of helped the book propel the book out and give it a good you know push out of the gate.
0: Well, we will talk about habits uh, at some point, I promise. And uh, but you know you've given a million interviews on that, and there's a whole book on that. I always love. The backstory: Do you still just have one
1: person, you and is it Lindsay? Yeah, that's your yep. team. It's just yeah, it's just us. Wow. Um, I uh, I had someone join me for a few months uh, for like podcast stuff. I was thinking about launching a show. Now that's for various reasons, that's on the back burner. But um, yeah, yeah, we're just a, a team of uh, me and me and one other person. I you... that's how I prefer it. I um, have no intentions of hiring a larger staff. Um, I just want to keep it as lean as possible. Why? Why is that? Uh, I think I'm a bad manager. I don't think I'm good at managing people. Uh, I don't enjoy it. So, um, there are plenty of other authors who have really big teams. You know, some of them have hundreds of people if they want to run like a whole consultancy or have like a big coaching uh, program or, you know, like it depends on what kind of business you want to run. And, um, there are, probably plenty of arguments for doing that. If you want to make the maximum amount of money or make the maximum amount of revenue, but I have no desire to make more money and have my daily life be worse. So I would rather have my, my first question is always, how do I want to spend my days? And I start there and then I want to do whatever is cool and creative and fun and interesting and build a really successful business within the confines of how I want to be living my days. And, um, that has to be the boundary for me. So I'm just, I'm not interested in having like a huge team or growing to, you know, be as large as, yeah. as possible.
0: You must be very good at saying no, because, you know, on one hand you describe what I would call the outbound, you know, you're a, a, a an author, a first time author, you send 300 cold call emails, you're, you're working the system trying to get noticed. And now, you know, with the position you have in the world, it's the opposite. You must have just a ton of inbound that you, you know, speaking requests, media requests, interview requests. Can you do this? You probably have a lot of pressure to publish the next book from publishers and deals coming in. Can you talk about your discipline for staying lean, staying focused and saying no?
1: Yeah, I'm probably the like, I don't know, wrong person asked this question too. I feel like I'm always uh, three months behind what I should be saying no to. I'm like always on the hook for more than, than I should be. Um, early in my career, I felt like I was trying to say yes to everything. I was trying to capitalize on opportunities. And I still feel like that's probably the right approach. You know, like nobody, nobody knew who I was. I didn't have any resources. I didn't have an audience. I didn't have any, you know, so it was just like, you have to try to be this force of nature and make the opportunity for yourself or capitalize on whatever, you know, potential advantages you can find um, and make the most of the opportunity. But then this weird thing happens where, you know, the book blows up. And as you said, now there's a ton of inbound and it was kind of like, I wouldn't say it was overnight, but it was over a period of about three months. Um, The book came out in October and then the period from like December to February, I, that was the period where it was like, oh, I suddenly need to like completely change my approach. Like I can't say yes to everything now. This is
0: 2018, right? The book came out. Was yeah. It 2018? came out in October
1: of 2018. Yeah. Uh, so from December, 2018 to February, 2019, that was when things like started to click a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, I need to start saying no to like the vast majority of things that are coming in. Um, and it just got progressively harder over the next year or two. I am better about it now. And some of it is like, we have processes in place that help. Um, some of you know, some of it, honestly, like some of it stinks a little bit. Like I, when I first started building the audience, um, The first 10,000 people that signed up to my email list, I sent each person, I would just go through, you know, it was just a couple, I don't know how many it was today, 30 a day, 40 a day, whatever it was. But, um, you know, I would go through and I would send each person an email and just say, hey, thanks so much for signing up. Like, I'm really excited to have you here. It's great to have you as part of the audience. Um, And you can do that for the first 10,000. But after a while, like, you can't do that anymore. And then it got to the point where I was like, all right, I won't do outbound reached people come in. But whenever someone emails me, I'll respond to them. So I did that for, the, for a while and then you get over a hundred thousand and then like that becomes hard. And then now, you know, now the email list is 2 million people and I, there's just, you know, I had to give it up. I can't do, I can't do the email inbox anymore. And, um, that's a little bit of a bummer. You know, it's like, I, I feel, um, I don't know if I feel responsibility to do it, but I, I do feel like, yeah, these people care enough to like have read or send a message in. Like, I, I don't know, it'd be nice to be able to respond to them. So it's just hard once the volume gets large. Um, so some of that stuff is different. Like I, I just, you know, I don't do email anymore, basically. Um, vast majority of podcast requests get declined. Used to be, I would do whatever one, you know, reached out. But now I only do like 15 or 20 a year. And I just, you know, anybody who reaches out, we say, listen, you got to go on the wait list. And I'll do one block of interviews a year. And if you make the cut, like we'll let you know. Uh, but, you know, it'll be, it's going to be a few months before we get this scheduled. Um, and you know, so again, same thing there. It's like, be great if we could do them all, but just time is limited. Um, speaking requests, same thing. Speaking is a really weird thing, you know, where it's like 99% of the time it's a no. Um, but occasionally you, you can do one in a sense. What I'm getting at here is that focus is really the art of knowing what to ignore. You know, it's, we think about it as being what you commit to, but it's just as much what you avoid. And if you become good at ignoring the um, lower value might be the wrong word, but lower leverage tasks, Mm -hmm. uh, then you have time and space for the higher leverage things. And the tricky part is it's a moving target, you know, like even now, like things that I would have previously been excited about, there's stuff that happens every week now that would have been the coolest thing that happened to me for like the whole year, you know, three years ago, five years ago. And, uh, I can't do it. And so it's, it's a weird, it's a very weird place to be in. I, I definitely, um, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm complaining because it's like the best possible outcome that you could want. You know, I remember hearing one time that, um, Charlie Munger said like, you know, a lot of time people make it to their nineties and then all they do is complain about old age and how much their body hurts and how difficult life is. And he's like, it doesn't make any sense to complain about the best possible outcome. Like the alternative is, is, is worse. Um, and so same story here, like it's best possible yeah. outcome. Um, so I'm very grateful for it, but it does come with like a new set of challenges and you need to, to kind of, uh, alter your mindset to, to manage it and handle it.
0: I appreciate you talking about it because there are thousands of people listening to this who ended up leading something bigger than they expected and they're having to make the same decisions. Number one, no, you're not alone. Number two, uh, I'm familiar with a lot of what you just shared. And you say, I will always answer every email. I will always say yes. And then you eventually, the inbound gets to the point where you just can't do it. So you don't do a lot of interviews. What is one question you wish people would ask you that nobody ever asks you?
1: Uh, honestly, a lot of what we already talked about. No, most really? people don't ask about how the book happened or how, like, what's going on behind the scenes to, to get it launched. And it's sort of interesting because a lot of the core message of Atomic Habits is that the results of success are highly visible and widely discussed, but the process of success is invisible and often hidden from view. And so we only talk about things usually if it's a result. Like you're never going to hear somebody say, "Here's a news story about man eating chicken and salad for lunch." You know, it's like, <laughs> no, it's only a story once man loses hundred pounds, and then then we have something right. to talk about. Or like, you'll never see people on social media be like, you know, James writes five hundred words today. You know, it's like it's only a story once Atomic Habits is a bestseller. And so right. I feel like a lot of what I'm trying to encourage in the book is a recommitment or a refocusing on the process and on the habits and on the system that you're mm-hmm. running day in and day out, and not as much of an emphasis on the results. And uh, ironically, that process for creating the book almost never gets talked about. What people always talk about is books sold over 10 million copies is bestseller. It's been on the New York times list for X number uh-huh. of weeks. Um, and not what was the process behind that? How did it actually come <laughs> to be? So, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that we were able to kind of flip that on its head and talk a little bit about the, the behind the scenes piece. Well, that makes me
0: really happy too. So let's fast forward then. So it was about a decade-ish ago that you started blogging on a regular basis, November 12th, so.
1: 2012 was the first article I wrote on jamesclear.com. And then I did uh, every Monday and Thursday for the next three years after that.
0: Very similar, September 2012 for me. And in those <laughs> days, it was easy to blow up. I mean, you just had to write and people found you. Do you know Brian Clark? Do you know him? Copyblogger? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I got to, I followed Brian for years and I just met him recently and we struck up a friendship, but you he know, was super he, early.
1: they probably, I don't know when copyblogger started, it's probably like 2006 or something. They were yeah, like, yeah. Very early. 506. Yeah. 506. And he
0: kind of helped create the rules of like what people like you and I did. And I've had him on the show, but he will tell you what got you there won't work in the future. So when you're thinking about the future now, is is there a sequel or an other book in the works or Mm -hmm. like what's on your current agenda? And then how are you approaching things strategically differently now than you did a decade ago when it comes to being noticed, develop, you know, nurturing an email list? Because a lot of the rules got thrown out the window in the last five years. So that's kind of two or three Um, questions, but feel free to take it where you
1: want. Sure. I, so I generally agree with Brian that, you know, uh, for sure what got you here won't get you there. And that, I don't even think that's unique to our corner of entrepreneurship or our part of the internet. You know, it's just, that's just kind of how it is in life in general. Like there's this sort of overarching principle of evolve or die, you know, like you have to, you have to be willing to update and adjust and, Um, the willingness to continue growing or to continue learning is perhaps like the most robust thing that you can have because that's just going to be a requirement. Um, I don't even think it needs to be over a 10-year time span or a five-year time span. I would say uh, looking back over the last decade, about every two years or so, where my website gets traffic from is very different from where it was two years prior. And so there's kind of these like shifts in how things happen. Um, it's very hard to predict where it's going to go. So I don't think anybody really knows. Um, it's also very hard to notice where things are going. If you're not in the mix, if you're not engaged and early on, I, like I like I said, I had a lot of time. I didn't have kids yet. I wasn't married yet, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so that was an advantage and I could like spend more time, you know, being in the mix, being on. Quora or Reddit or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and just kind of seeing how things worked or looking at other people's brands. I, that's what I would be doing if I was up and coming right now is the same thing I did then, which is try to identify the people who have the kind of lifestyle that you want to have and then start deconstructing what they do and how their brand works. How frequently do they post videos? How long are they like, let's say that you want to be a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. how many videos do they post how long are they what do they do for their thumbnails are there any patterns in how the videos are created is there a structure in what the typical video looks like is there like an intro period for a minute and then they get into the main content how do they hook people in is there any pattern in how they write the titles of the the videos and so on and that's just an example for youtubers right you can do that for you know any possible thing that you're interested in but i think there are a couple different levels of, uh, or a couple different hurdles you have to clear. The first, maybe, and maybe, maybe the most important, enormous hurdle is: what are you genuinely interested in? If you're not genuinely interested in it, if you are not truly curious and excited about it, it's going to be very hard to win this race in the long run because it's going to start to feel like a hassle. It's going to start to feel like a chore for you to show up each day and do the work. But if you're genuinely interested in it, there will be like endless opportunities for you to improve. You know, there are some YouTubers out there who all those things I just mentioned, they like find that very interesting. They think it's very curious, you know, like how long is the ideal video and what is the ideal thumbnail and how do you structure the perfect title? They care about all that stuff. And because they're interested in it, it's not a hassle for them to try to do that with their own brand. Um, And I think a lot of the time, We just sort of mimic or imitate what we think we should be doing or what it feels like society is nudging you toward or what your parents want you to do or your peers are encouraging you to do. And so you kind of end up with this brand or this business that is mimicked off of others when, in fact, the first thing you need to ask is, is it a right fit for me and my interests? Um, and then once it's a fit for your interest, sure, go ahead and imitate the other people who are succeeding within that little sphere of what you want to do. But, um, you need to, I think you need to start with what is your genuine curiosity after that. Then I really like the Steve jobs had this famous quote where he was talking about, um, I think it was the iPad, uh, not using flash. And flash was a big thing on the web, on the internet at that time. And people were like, you're, you know, how come you're, you're not using this technology or whatever. And he said something to the effect of, we like to invest in products that are in their spring and summer and technologies that are in their spring and summer. And we feel like flash is in its fall and headed toward winter. And so, you know, we don't want to do that. And I would say that's like a good way to think about where am I going to get traffic from? Where are the areas of the internet that are kind of in their spring and summer right now? Uh, And are there things that maybe you can, are those places that you can hang out um, and utilize? The other element there is not every platform is a good fit for the certain types of content, you know? So I am, I'm a writer and most of my ideas are obviously text-based. So mostly I'm hanging out on blogs and email lists and Twitter I do have an Instagram account that surprisingly, despite the fact that I never share pictures of myself or any kind of image, like does fairly well because I just post images of of quotes. Um, So that was able to work, but I don't have a YouTube channel and I don't have a TikTok account. And, you know, like there's just, there are other mediums and formats that aren't as good of a fit for my business, but they'd be a great fit for other businesses. You know, there are some businesses that that's, that's their whole thing is uh, YouTube and TikTok. And so uh, you just need to try to figure out what is the best fit for you and your brand. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. There There's a lot that we could discuss with this. But yeah. the last thing that I'll say on it is 10 years ago when we were getting started, I feel like the internet was maybe a little bit more of a hub and spoke model where you could have your website at the center and then you could just repurpose content across a bunch of different things and all point back to the website or the blog. Now I don't feel like people use that, use the internet in the same way. It's kind of more siloed in the sense that you have people who are like podcast people and Instagram people. And then you've got other folks who are like Twitter people and uh, YouTube people, and they don't really use podcast and Instagram. And so the hard part about that is you have these, it's more platform centric now. And if you want to stand out on any of these platforms, Like if you want to stand out on Instagram, you need to be in the top 1% of Instagrammers. If you want to stand out on YouTube, you need to be in top 1% of YouTubers. And so I don't think it makes sense to spread yourself thin. It comes back to this concept we talked about a minute ago, focus, and pick a few key things that feel like they're in their spring and summer and that are a good fit for your brand and your uh, business, and then try to master those. And I feel like it's better to have a big audience in one platform than to have like a small audience in 10
0: yeah, I love that definition of focus. Is the art of what to ignore? That's that's a great phrasing of it. So, two last questions for you, James. One quick answer; the other might take a few more minutes. Uh, is there another book in the works, or in your mind, or uh, what's up with
1: that? I am technically under contract to write a second book. Um, uh. <laughs> I have not been have not been writing as much as I would like, but uh, yes, it's it's in the works. I I wrote my book on habits. Like I don't, everything I know about habits is in atomic habits. So I I don't have like a second book on that topic, but uh, I do think I would like a book that plays nicely with it. Um, And there are some questions you could have after finishing atomic habits, like, okay, I know how to build habits now, but which habits do I focus on? Or like, where do I direct my attention and energy? Kind of similar to the focus point. How do I focus on the highest leverage things, the best things? So I'm sort of circling a bunch of topics like that right now, and uh, it's slowly taking shape.
0: Now, okay, so my last question is, because we could talk about habits, this will be the first podcast of the new year on my show. Um, But again, all that information is out there on many interviews in an incredible book on your blog. But toward the end of Atomic Habits, you talk about your values, that your values, you try to make sure you're Habits are driven from your values. And at the end of every year, you review your values and you think about, okay, how do I want to shift that? I love the idea of value driven habits. I don't know whether you'd use that language or whether you'd nuance it in any way, but can you tell us about that process and how it informs your habits for
1: a new year? Well, um, the big picture is that I think your habits matter, not just because of the results that they get you but because of the identity that they reinforce. So your habits are how you embody a particular identity. For example, when you make your bed in the morning, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Or if you study biology for 20 minutes on Tuesday night, you embody the identity of someone who's studious. And so we often talk about habits as mattering because they can help you be more productive or lose weight or make more money or whatever. And that's true that habits can help you get those results. But the real reason that habits matter is that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And so no, doing one push-up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And individually, those are small things, but collectively, they start to add up. You know, you repeat these habits each day, and you build up this body of evidence. You keep casting votes on the pile. And pretty soon, you sort of reshape the story you have about who you are and what you're doing. And this is a little bit different than what you often hear. Like, you'll often hear people say something like, uh, fake it till you make it. Now, I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself. But it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion. You know, like (laughs) your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you say you are and what you're actually doing. And so my argument, my encouragement is to let the habit lead the way and to cast these votes for being that kind of person. And once you get to that place where your habits are reinforcing your desired identity, once you get to that place where you feel like, yeah, this is actually part of who I am, it becomes easier to follow through on the behavior, you know, like someone who views themselves as I am a runner, they don't have to motivate themselves to go for a run in the same way that somebody who's just getting started does, you know, it's kind of like, no, this is just part of what I do. Like, It's part of my normal day. And so I think the elements of your story that you take pride in are often the ones that are, uh, at least a little bit easier to stick to the habits around, you know, like if you take pride in the size of your biceps, you never skip arm day at the gym, you know, or like (laughs) if you take pride in how your hair looks, you have this long hair care routine and you do it every day. And so what we're really trying to get to is a place where your habits reinforce your desired identity. Now, I think the first question you can ask if you're just like at this planning process for the new year and so on is a lot of the time people pick New Year's resolutions or they pick their goals for the year and they think about what do I want to achieve? And I feel like the question to ask is, who do I want to become? You know, what is the, who is the type of person I wish to Identity-based be? Identity-based habits. Right? And then yeah. what habits reinforce that desired identity? Now, the tricky part, and this is where I come back to your actual question, is that over time, things can drift. You know, your habits don't always continue to reinforce that identity that you want, or you maybe you fall off the wagon a little bit, and you got started really strong, but now you're not doing it as consistently. And so at the end of each year, I have this annual review process where I write out what my core values are, which all of this, of course, is connected to the identity I want to have, the type of person I want to be. And then I start to go through the habits that I've followed for the year. How many workouts did I follow or complete? How, how many articles did I write? Um, how many places did I visit? How many nights did I have at home with family? How many nights were on the road? And then you start to look through and you see, okay, I said these things are my core values. Do my habits match up with that? And I think that's another really crucial question to ask yourself, which is, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? Because if they can't, and there's some gap between the core values that you say you have or the type of person that you wish to be and the habits that you're following each day, something needs to change, you know? And so this is one of another like core ideas from the book, which is you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Well, in this case, the goal, the objective is who do I want to be? What values do I have? You know, what kind of, what's the type of person I want to create? But the system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there's ever a gap between your goal and your system, if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win. You know, like almost by definition, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. So, that's a long-winded answer, but I think the, the core idea is that we want to start with who do I wish to become and build habits to reinforce that identity. And then it's good to have checkpoints along the way, periods of reflection and review, whether that's annual or some other timeline that works for you um, so that you can just check in and have these like milestones and make sure is my behavior actually reinforcing the values that I hope it is. And um, I, I have found that to be a more useful long-term way. To think about building and shaping your habits and behavior,
0: James this has been so incredibly enlightening. Is there a final word for um, leaders or anything else you want
1: to say before we direct people to where you're showing up online these days? Last thing I'll just say: you know, we've talked a lot about like strategy of habits and kind of and some of my personal backstory and whatnot. Um, the other crucial part of this is execution, and you know, of course, Atomic Habits is there as a reference guide, and there are many ways to execute these ideas. But if I was just going to offer one to close, yeah, I would encourage people to, to utilize what I call the two minute rule, which is very simple. It just says, take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or mm-hmm. do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes people resist that a little bit because they're like, okay, you know, I know the real goal isn't just to take the mat out. I know I actually want to do the workout, but I had this reader, his name's Mitch. Um, I mentioned him in Atomic Habits. He lost over a hundred pounds. He's kept off for more than a decade. And when he first started going to the gym, he had this strange little rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous. You know, it sounds silly. You're like, clearly this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you take a step back what you realize is he was mastering the art of showing up. You know, he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And that's a deep truth about habits, this kind of core idea, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, it has to become the standard in your life before you can scale it up and turn it into something more. You need to standardize before you optimize. And I don't know why we do it, but we get really all or nothing about our habits. You know, we're so focused on finding the best business idea or the perfect sales strategy, the ideal workout plan. We're so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up, even if it's just in a small way. So I think my parting advice would be, start by asking yourself, what am I optimizing for? Who's the type of person I wish to become? What's the identity I want to reinforce? And then the next step is, how can I scale that down? How can I master the art of showing up How can I start executing day in and day out and reinforce that desired identity? And then in the long run, you know, there are plenty of opportunities to improve once you've mastered the art of showing up.
0: James, thank you so much. Where are you showing up online these days? Obviously at your blog. I love your newsletter. So tell people who aren't connected where
1: they can Yeah, thank you. Um, Pleasure to talk to you. Jamesclear.com is the easiest place to go. Um, You can just click on newsletter if you want to sign up for that. It's called 321. Uh, It goes out to over 2 million people each week. It's just three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and then one question to think about for the week. And uh, of course, Atomic Habits. Uh, And so if you want to check that out, just go to atomichabits.com.
0: Great. James, thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying yes to this, and it has been a treat. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you, that one was fascinating. Every once in a while, you get a guest where you're like, okay, I got to stay so focused because there's so much value in every sentence, and James is one of those leaders. So if you would like more, we have transcripts for you and show notes where you can go a little bit deeper. Check that out at carrynewhoff.com/slash episode 543. You'll find everything there, including links to everything that we discussed. We have a killer episode coming up next time, too. But before that, I want you to check out what our partners are doing. Over at the Art of Leadership Academy, I've got something brand new called the Pastoral Succession Toolkit. If you've got one coming up in the next few years, you're in the middle of one, or you've done one in the last five. Get my value packed training and comprehensive checklist for free by going to successiontoolkit.com and go to slash carry to get your free resources and join the over 15,000 churches who are part of the He Gets Us movement at slash carry. Well, next episode, we have got Chris Anderson from TED, another conversation I absolutely loved. We talk about TED's massive success about communication. Why his idea for TED got turned down by every major TV network, and a lot more. Here's an excerpt. I think of my first TED, Jeff Jeff Bezos, who was not really well known then, told me this is the most important week of my year, and uh, several people felt the same. Like this was they, they they started their year's calendar, carving this out because it went so deeply inside them, and um, and so that was the clue that. Um, there was really something special here that deserved to be more than just 500 people one, one, once a year. Plus, we talk about Chris Anderson's faith a little bit and the whole spiritual journey that is life. Also coming up, we've got Annie F. Downs, Sean Morgan, Mark Sayers, Tim Keller, Andy and Sandra Stanley. Who else have we got? We got Nathan Finocchio, John Mark Comer, Caitlin Beatty, Gretchen Rubin, and a whole lot more. And you get that automatically when you subscribe for free. If you love this episode, and I hope you did, please share it with your friends. Please also leave us a rating and review. When you share, we get to do this every single week. And that's why the podcast has grown so much over the last few years. And for those of you who listen to the end, thank you. I got something brand new I'm starting on Friday. You know what it is? It is my first ever curated newsletter. It's called On The Rise. You can subscribe at ontherisenewsletter.com. And if you would like to get a short email in your inbox every Friday that outlines some of the best stuff I have found on the internet some of the best books I'm reading some of the best shows I've watched some of the most interesting ideas that are captivating my mind Uh, well think of it as a way to be introduced to new material to do some deeper research in areas maybe for a sermon or piece that you're writing Um, It is going to be a curious mix, kind of like this podcast, and I promise you, I'm spending a lot of time, as is my team, making sure you get the best and most interesting stuff. You can subscribe for free by going to ontherisenewsletter.com. Would love to see you over there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.